us today. As I was preparing for this message, um, this particular image, uh, uh, actually an image that came to my mind was a sower, and I began to just look for the images of sowers, and this particular one caught my attention. It's by Van Gogh, and uh, uh, Van Gogh was a unique artist uh, in the late 19th century, second half of the 19th century, uh, what we would have called a Dutch post-impressionist, and really started kind of a whole new wave, but had his own unique expression of art. Um, and uh, he, in just over a decade, he did uh, 2,100 uh, 2, artworks, including about 860 oil paintings in a decade. But he was also a man who was very troubled emotionally and spiritually, and uh, his, uh, his, his, his turmoil and torment and struggle with his own demons, he actually died by suicide at the age of 37. And I thought it was interesting because the reality is that there can be extreme giftedness and even uh, a wealth of kind of talents, and yet unless they are redeemed and there is that sense of God's presence in the midst of it, it can be something that is very tragic, very sad, as in the case of, of Vincent van Gogh. This particular painting uh, caught my attention uh, because it connected with what I have titled this message, and uh, this message titled, uh, Sow Sowing Seeds of Peace. I've been pondering this whole thing of peace. Uh, we are a peace church. I say that as a, a denomination, uh, as a, a network of Anabaptist peoples throughout the world. We're committed to peace, promoting peace, living peace, talking about peace. And uh, so for me, as I spent some time reflecting on this, this uh, past week, this phrase, sowing seeds of peace, was kind of uh, what, what, what brought that together. Um, there was... Someone who was going to read a passage of Scripture, is that correct? And did we miss that? Huh? Kendra, if you would uh, come and read that at this point, and uh, then we'll, uh, we'll continue uh, with the message. I'll be reading Matthew 5, 1 to 16. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled by men. 
You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Thank you, Kendra. Nestled in the midst of that particular passage is that phrase, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And I I ponder a lot this concept in this context of a peacemaker. What does a peacemaker look like? How does a peacemaker live? What is planted and seen in the life of a peacemaker? That phrase in, in the, uh, the middle of that passage that Kendra read from Matthew 5-9 that talks about blessed are the peacemakers, in the message, again a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, he says it this way, you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of competing, instead of competing or fighting. That's when you discover who you really are and you discover your place in God's family. Let me just read that again. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. This passage infers that as sons and daughters of God, we are called to be peacemakers. But what really is a peacemaker? What keeps us from being able to be the peacemakers that God has called us to be? And I think about it in the context of the fact that for many of us, this has not been modeled. And you might wonder how a bishop in the conference can say we've not modeled it, because the reality is we talk about peace all the time. Sometimes maybe we talk about peace too much, and again, a bishop shouldn't say that, but I'm just, you understand what I'm saying. The reality is we talk about it. And my, jo- my journey of this discovery really happened in the context of the, of the Yes Discipleship Center in Philadelphia when I served as the director. And I was doing a lot of teaching, and we were teaching from the basis and f- framework of, of what it meant to be followers of Jesus from an Anabaptist perspective. And I realized that for many persons who came in, they had an understanding of what a peacemaker should do, but they didn't know who a peacemaker was in their hearts. There's an action that is about trying to promote and, 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 and demonstrate peace. There's also this sense of peace having to be formed and shaped in our lives. And also, being at a place where in the midst of the places of conflict, I have the ability, the gifts, and I'll say the maturity, the emotional maturity to be able to engage in the midst of those places of conflict. And it's not easy. All of us know that. In fact, uh, my journey really was that a recognition that there was what I would call uh, this, this tension between what I would say peacemaking and peacekeeping. Peacemaking versus peacekeeping. And I realized that I was taught a theology of peacemaking, but what was modeled to be was a practice of peacekeeping. You understand what I'm saying? The reality that... We talked about this whole thing of making peace, 
But when it came right down to, to it, we only wanted to keep the peace and not really find a way to address the issue, to find a way to work at those things. And I find that true in, in many places, but I particularly find that true in the context of this county, this conference. The reality that we are good at talking about being peacemakers, but our preference is really to keep the peace. And peacekeeping really means that what we're trying to do is find a way to avoid or ignore conflict, believing that if we ignore it long enough, enough, it will go away, or to create this society that somehow says, we don't have any conflict. That's a utopic context, my friends. That does not exist in this world. On this side of heaven, that's not a reality. There are always conflicts. I happen to be married 33 years, soon 34 with Brenda. There are conflicts in this world. There are conflicts in every marriage. Now, it may be expressed in different ways, and personalities address that in different ways, but the reality is it's there. And if we try to imagine that we are able to be peacemakers when our practice really is that we're really working at it from the context of just saying we're just trying to keep the peace, we're really not engaging at the core of what is here. Peacemaking is engaging with the conflict and, in truth, coming to the place where conflict is resolved because we worked with it. And you and I both know that. That's way harder than peacekeeping. The only problem and the challenge is that peacekeeping doesn't bear the fruit that God has intended for his body. Peacemaking is the resolution of conflict. It's hard work. Invite us to turn to James uh, 3, which is really the the foundation of this message today that I bring. And uh, turn with me to James 3, uh, verse 18. Um, We'll be referring to the rest of the text. That's why I'm inviting you to do that. James 3, 18 is up here on the screen in front of us. And it simply says, Peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, if we were to do a a, a kind of a straw poll here in the context and say how many of us are committed to or desire to reap a harvest, you know, a harvest of righteousness, we would all say, well, of course. I want to be a contributor of righteousness. I want to be a part of what that is. I want there to be righteousness here on this earth. That's my desire. But it says here that peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That really is the foundation kind of behind this message and, uh, again, the title for it, Sowing Seeds of Peace. One of the longings of my heart is for the people of God to be mature enough, spiritually and emotionally, to be able to enter into that high calling as sons and daughters of God. Hear me on that. That's a longing of my heart that we would, be, we would be strong enough, we've been mature enough spiritually, and I say that, but also emotionally, because I believe it is that we're not, when we're, we're not healed emotionally and we've got scars and wounds and brokenness and, and, and unresolved things in our lives, we're not able to enter in and engage in a place of resolving conflict because we're still dealing with our stuff. And that's a place that God wants to focus on And he wants to stir in our midst because he wants healthy people, spiritually, 
emotionally healthy in every way to be a part of this kingdom band that is bringing about transformation, not by a revolution of force, but by a revolution of love. That's what he's calling us to. I find it interesting, again, uh, this uh, particular verse in front of us from the New Living Translation. It says it this way, And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. That's a, it's a declarative statement. Those who are peacemakers, the fruit of what they do is that they will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Or the message, again, the paraphrase from Eugene Peterson. And listen, listen again, because it ties in with a lot of what I was sharing before. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other and treating each other with dignity and honor. That's pretty powerful. Listen again. Paraphrase from Peterson on this particular verse here. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other and treating each other with dignity and honor. There are buried here in this particular passage and I think broader in the chapter here some really key instructions for us as a body. And I'd like us to look at this verse in the context of of James chapter 3 as a way of being able to listen together to what the Lord is saying to us. So reading from James 3 beginning in verse 1. So the verse at the end of this chapter isn't isolated and alone, okay? It's in a context. It's in a setting where James is writing and instructing the church. James 3.1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we, put, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his, of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But... If you harbor envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. 
Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and spiritual ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in, in, in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I hadn't spent a lot of time in this passage recently, but I was really just kind of hit right in the heart as I read it in the context of the whole chapter, looking at at verse 18 and then looking back into this passage and say, wow, we're called to be sowing seeds of peace, but it requires a certain kind of posture, doesn't it? It requires a certain kind of guardedness in our lives that we're not engaged in certain activities or postures of the heart or we're not going to be people of peace. I identified, as I spent time praying for this passage, what I would call five keys to sowing seeds of peace. You can't read James 3 and not write down here, taming the tongue. You just can't do it. Taming the tongue and this, this part of our body that's really in many ways within the context of our mouth, so this whole thing forms words. But what it speaks about is what's in our minds and in our hearts. And when we're not guarded, you know what comes out? The truth. What comes out is what's inside. And at times it condemns us because it exposes us for what is happening inside. And none of us is exempt from this. Every one of us has to guard and tame this tongue. He says in the passage, it cannot be tamed like an animal or steered like or controlled like a ship. He uses those two examples. It makes great boasts. Nothing that any one of us likes less than somebody who always is standing up and tooting their own horn. You're just like, go away. Stop it. And then suddenly you realize in the midst of a particular situation, you were doing the same thing. You just found your nice little Christian way to do the same thing. But you were tooting your own horn. It's in our hearts. It's our human nature. We can't tame the tongue. We can't tame the heart. We can't have behavior modification to make us look good. Because, I say to make us, I'll say we we can do behavior modification to make us look good, but at the core, it is only a facade. And the heart is always going to bubble up. That's part of what he's saying about the tongue. It's going to come out. What's in here is going to come out of your mouth. And it does. He says it, sets, it can set a whole forest on fire with its spark. And he says the tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the, the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of our life on fire. It is itself on fire by hell. Come on, James. Like, be a little nicer to us with not such harsh language. But what James is saying here is this kind of speech and behavior and practice is from the pit of hell. That's what he's saying. It's the enemy's strategy to destroy you and me and each gathered body of Christ around this world. That's his strategy. 
He wants us to fail. He wants us to crumble and to fall. That's his strategy. And I've been in a lot of churches around the world and in churches that I've been a part of in the context, and every one I've seen the same exact pattern. It's present. Insidious, but there to try to undermine what it is that God wants to do in, 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 in the church. The reality is that the tongue cannot be tamed by you or me. We don't have the power, the capacity, the ability to be able to tame the tongue. The same way that we can't tame our lives and change our lives and transform our lives, that's only the work of the Spirit of God within us that does that work of transformation. The tongue can't be tamed by you or by me. It says it's full of deadly poison. It isn't very hopeful for us. But we know that no matter what we face, that we, that we cannot accomplish on our own strength, God is able to transform, to change, and to bring new life. To change us, to, to help us to control ourselves, and even to control our tongues. So one of the keys to sowing seeds of peace is to tame our tongue. And to tame our tongue, we're, gonna, we're going to need surrender to the Spirit of God to do that. Like I said, I don't know any person who hasn't struggled with this or any church where there ha- this hasn't affected God's purpose and plans for the church because of our human nature and what is there. And so even today, the cry of my heart and the cry before the Lord is, Lord, have mercy on us and come and tame our tongues. A second way we, see, we, we, we sow seeds of peace is by blessing and not cursing. In James 3, 9 through 12, he talks about that with the tongue we praise God. We stand up on Sunday and we worship. And with that same one, we curse men. Now, we, we don't use this word curse very much in the context of our language. So now if you curse in our culture, curse means you use a four-letter word to use something that is inappropriate. Actually, curse just means speaking anything, whatever the word may be or the context where you're speaking something against a person, judging a person, or gossiping about a person. Any one of those things is a curse. You're speaking something against that person, and at its core, that speaking against someone really is our human nature at its base form. I feel better if I can say something bad about Jeff. I might really be bad, but if I can make Jeff look bad, then I'm a little better than Jeff. Now, that's not really a good foundation for uh, a sense of good self-worth. But our human nature, that's how it gets its self-worth. And again, I'm, I'm saying this. You see it in children. You can watch this stuff, and they, and, and, and they don't know how to kind of cover it up. As we become adults, we find socially acceptable ways to do the exact same thing, but it just looks okay. And God's always there shining his light in and saying, I want these things to be exposed because I want peace to be sown through the lives, the, the followers, the, the people that are called my children to be peacemakers in this world. Verse 11, really at the core here, he says, Out of the same mouth can come praise and cursing, my brothers. This should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? These things shouldn't go together. You can't mix them. Oil and water shouldn't be together here. And so in the body of a believer, where there's this sense of blessing God, there also has to be that same posture of blessing others. I remember this was another one of those kind of learnings in the context of the, of the Yes Discipleship Center when we had young people coming in, most of them 18 to 
26, 27. And we did three months of intensive discipleship training. You can imagine 20 to 25 young people, most of them from the county, most of them churched, not all, because some of them would have been recent converts, but most from the church, and the way they bantered and interacted with each other. And I had realized as a youth pastor, which I was before that, that as I spent time praying with young people, that they were deeply wounded by the joking and, 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 and just kind of off, you know, unhelpful comments people made. And then everybody laughed. And so we set a standard in those three months where we talked about it as life words versus death words. Can we commit together to speak life over each other rather than words that would cut down and be words of death? And we struggled like crazy because we were used to getting our laughs at other people's expense. Our language, again, our lips speaking things, th- these things out in ways that were unhelpful, hurtful, and actually damaging. Now, it's interesting because the context is in some ways in the world we're actually in schools, they're leading with this whole thing of trying to address bullying. You know what? We should be leading in the church at addressing bullying because it's language that is cursing and actions that are cursing rather than blessing. It's a part of the posture that, that God is calling us to. One of the, and you don't need to turn here, but just, I'm going to just turn quickly because this was the, the, the context. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, at the end of that chapter, was really what I used in those teachings. And that was Ephesians 4, 29 and following. And, and, and this, is, this is how starkly clear it is in the Scriptures. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, all rage, all anger, all brawling, and all slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Pretty explicit, right? And yet you and I both know that we all struggle at living that out in a way that exemplifies what peacemakers are called to live like. And part of that is because our human nature reaches for something different. And only what comes from God through a living and vital relationship with God is the way that that is able to impact me so that I might be one who blesses and does not curse The third area that I highlight from this passage uh, is that of gaining humility through wisdom. James 3.13 says it this way, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. I just pondered that, gaining humility through wisdom. And wisdom is a recognition of that which really is, that which is, is, is indeed the truth. Wisdom, you're always saying, I want wisdom. I'm making a decision. I'm going to talk to dad. I'm going to talk to so-and-so. I want wisdom because I want to make the right decision. It's that which is full of truth. The definition that was often used in, in the context of this discipleship training I experienced was the definition of humility, which goes this way. Humility is being known for who you truly are. Nothing more and nothing less. Hear it again. Humility is being known for who you truly are. Nothing more and nothing less. It is being known for something. 
Keith is this type of person. This is who I am, who God created me to be. I want to live in fullness in that. I don't want to try to boast and go beyond that, but I sure don't want to undercut it and say, oh, I'm not that good. I'll be Mennonite false humility. You know, don't say anything. I'm not that great. No, you're not that great, but you've been gifted with things that God wants to call out, that he wants to bless, and that he wants to use in that context. Being known for who you really are, and this is wisdom, nothing more and nothing less than who God has created you to be. God wants to reveal to each one of us who we really are, how he's wired us, what he's placed within us, what kind of gifts we have, and how those can be used for kingdom building and for peace seeds to be sown. The reality is that being peacemakers means that we have to be at peace with God and at peace with ourselves. They're connected, but they're two unique pieces that we have to work at. At peace with God means that we recognize God has received us, extended grace to us, forgiven us, and we're made new. But now I still have to deal with the fact that I don't like myself very much. I don't like how I feel around certain people at certain times. I don't like that I feel inadequate in doing what I'm doing. And so the reality is I'm not at peace with myself. I have to have both of those to be a peacemaker. And they both come from God. The one comes, in a sense, more instantaneously, like it's at a moment of receiving grace, and then I receive it again the next day. The other one is a journey toward transformation and being made new. I said it before, and I think I'll mention it again. If we are not spiritually and emotionally well, we will not be able to do well at sowing seeds of peace. The fourth way that I I identified from this passage was that of avoiding envy and selfish ambition. In in verses uh, 13, whoops, I changed the way to Ephesians here. Um, In verses, uh, again, back in James 3, verses 13 and 14, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. Then, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or, or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven. And he puts wisdom uh, in this context. We put it in quotation marks because it's not truly wisdom. It comes, doesn't come from heaven, uh, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and spiritual ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Those are heavy words, but it identifies the fruit of envy and selfish ambition. When I'm jealous or envious of somebody else, or I have selfish ambition in a particular pursuit that I'm engaged in, the reality is, is that it creates all kinds of disorder. It's simply the fruit of that kind of living and that kind of practice. Again, it's clear that if this self-serving attitude, if those self-serving attitudes are in our lives, we will not be able to be peacemakers and sow seeds of peace. And then lastly, we long to, live, long to be peacemakers. We must nurture soil in our lives that yearns for heavenly wisdom, wisdom that comes from the heart of God. And these, the, this is closely connected with, this, with the, the third one, But the way in which James describes this heavenly wisdom really captures my attention. It's first of all pure. It's peace-loving, 
So again, it connects with the whole theme. It's there in that sense that it, it loves to see peace expressed. It loves to see peace flow. It loves to plant peace. Because the fruit of that demonstrates the kingdom and brings glory back to God. It's considerate. It's submissive. It doesn't want its own way. It surrenders and submits to the body around it. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial. It's sincere. Brothers brothers and sisters, those are characteristics of peacemakers, of those who are able to engage in sowing seeds of peace. We, I'm not speaking to East Pete, and I say we, I'm not speaking to Lancaster Conference per se, I'm saying we, as followers of Jesus in this world, have a long way to go on this one. We can talk, talk, talk about peace and peacemaking. But the proof is in the pudding, again. How are we doing at that? At peace with God, at peace within ourselves, and the fruit of that kind of heavenly wisdom being experienced in our relationships one with, the, with another. That is the place that we find ourselves in. Again, with the declaration in closing from that verse, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a, reap a harvest of righteousness. I have a challenge for each one of you today, for myself included. It's one of the reasons I like to preach. I get to preach at myself, and I get to sit with it for a whole week and allow that to continue to percolate and stir in my soul. But for me, I'd like to encourage us just to pause for a minute with this question in front of us. And that is to ask God to give you the strength to live out James 3. Not to say, I'm going to try harder to do James 3. Because you can't do this. You're not capable or able in your own strength, at least to sustain it. You might for a day or a week, but it's not going to be sustained. It's going to be drudgery. It's going to require the power of the Holy Spirit coming and flowing and being poured into your heart and your life. Ask Him to help you to tame your tongue. Ask Him to help you to bless and not curse others. Ask Him to help you to gain humility that comes from wisdom Ask him to help you to avoid envy and selfish ambition. And ask, you, ask him to help you to nurture that heavenly wisdom as it was described in verse 17. Let's just pause for a minute in quietness. Lord, you have heard each one of our individual prayers. We offer them to you. And we invite your power to flow in our lives in new and fresh ways so that we might be able to be the peacemakers who sow in peace that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. In a minute, I'm going to ask Dan as the deacon. Dan doesn't know this yet, but uh, just so you got your name and now you can kind of figure out what you're going to have to do. You don't have to do anything, really, other than I'm going to invite you here. And for Jeff to join me up here... um, This week as I was praying about this, I continued to sense the Lord keep saying, I want you to bless the congregation at East Pete to walk in the fullness of what this means. I don't even know what the fullness is, so I'm asking God for the revelation of what that is. 
And Friday evening, my wife and I were having a conversation. Uh, my wife's, I would say, very gifted prophetically in that there's just stuff that comes. She senses it. She's like, did you think about this? We began to, pray, to talk a little bit about it, and she said, I think you're supposed to pray that over the congregation. I said, okay, you know, like, thanks for, you know, volunteering me. Um, and uh, so I was just pondering that as I prepared. And again, that doesn't mean just because she said that, and I have to do it. I'm, I'm testing it. That's part of walking with God is somebody can say, you should do this. I think you should do this. God told me you should do this. I'm still always saying, hey, God, is that what I'm supposed to do? So I was out on our deck this morning uh, reading over my notes, adding little notes and things like that, just kind of fine-tuning it and stuff. And, and uh, usually uh, Brenda likes to sleep in. She said, oh, not always sleeping. She just likes quietness in the morning. And so just uh, came down a, a bit later, and we were talking some more. And then I said, oh, i gotta, I got to get my shower now, and i got to get ready to go. And I left, and I came down, and I said, pray for me. I, I feel like God's calling me to, to – God is confirming that I'm to pray over the, over the over the body at, at East Pete, and she said, "Not that I don't do that, just with a sense of a certain uh, focus." And I said, "Bye." I kissed her on the cheek. I turned around, and I mean, kind of took her by surprise because she was out on the on the on the deck yet, and just doing some artwork and stuff. And I and I said, "You know," and I went inside, and she went like this, and I was like, "What was that?" And I, I kind of and then I said, "Oh, I know what she meant. She meant what about the shofar?" And I was thinking, "Yeah, right." I'm going to bring my shofar. It's a, it's a, it's a, a wimpy North American shofar compared to a lot of the Jewish shofars. But shofars were used for many different, different reasons. And part of the reason that even this morning as I was coming here just looking at the biblical blowing of the shofar was a call to gather for worship. It was to usher in the presence of the Lord. It was to make a proclamation. It was to sound the alarm for war. It was a call to battle. And my sense was that, uh, though I'm not a professional shofar player, that I'd like to blow the shofar. It's sounding something in the heavenlies, but inviting us to join with what God's doing in the heavenlies for the purpose of 